Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. This is one of these last Psalms of Korah, or I should say Psalms for the sons of Korah. And it is a little bit distinct, uh, distinctive from the ones that have preceded it. Um, it follows well on the end of verse uh, 14 of the 48th Psalm, where we're told, For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even until death. And then, of course, when you come into the 49th Psalm, it concludes with the idea of death, ending in the word perish. And the general theme, as we've just read, seems to dictate about what you should trust and what you should not trust and the admonition that all the world needs to know and the scripture would speak of in verse number four of a dark saying upon mine harp. In fact, if you would go to Proverbs chapter one and verse six, I believe it is, there the uh, Solomon, the King Solomon is talking about how to understand these dark sayings. And when he speaks of dark sayings, he's not talking about darkness in the sense of uh, knowing electrical current so that you can turn a light bulb on. He's not speaking of darkness as in a sense of sinful sayings, but rather he's talking about those things upon which our mind often does not innately conceive or consider upon. That would be wisdom in a general sense. Uh, our heart is not born in such a way that we love wisdom. Wisdom, even an earthly wisdom, an earthly understanding, because you know James makes a distinguish between uh, heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. But we're not born with the aptitude that we have all the wisdom that we ever need. And sometimes the expressions of life lend us to learn things that we otherwise would have never done if it had not have been for that previous experience. These are dark things, oftentimes things that we have not yet truly considered. And by extenuating this, this psalm here in particular, he's going to even mention some dark things in a sense of things that we do not innately care to consider. And that also would be something particular to the youth. Uh, as you look in the 49th Psalm, ultimately he's talking about life and death. I, I would think of a sense you could grab of the entire psalm if you look in the ninth verse. He says that he should still live forever and not see corruption. He's talking about the ungodly man, particularly the ungodly wealthy, with the thought that he's going to live forever. You know, that's a really sobering consideration, isn't it? The thought that one day you'll live no more. I read this week as a fellow, he's going to go to prison for 10 or 15 years. It was, it was a hard sentence that was passed down, and I thought, I'm gonna, what what this guy do? I'm not planning on going to prison for anything, mind you, but some of these prison sentences, and come to find out it was, he was sentenced for theft. And I thought, wow, that's a long sentence for that. Well, here what had happened was for the last 15, 20 years, he had this big farm out there and uh, he had grown uh, grains and wheat and various substance like that and he had labeled it all organic. And people had paid over the last 20 years exorbitant prices for organically produced items and the only difference was it wasn't organic. And so, of course, there's a double-fold thing here that he had uh, absconded, they said, with close to $200 million in 20 years. That's right. 
he sold beans, labeled them organic, and profited over $200 million. And they said, you're going to jail for 20 years. That's what the result was. Why? Oh, people were angry, not only about the loss of money, but about their potential loss of life. If, if they had uh, contracted something from this or an allergy from this or whatever it might be, the reality is what produced that feeling in their heart was a fact that they have a plan one day that they're going to live as long as they can possibly live. The singular fact, it's sobering, is it not, to consider that we won't live forever. Back last month, I was down outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and I visited a colonial cemetery. I had traps back in those woods about a mile and a half, I guess it was. And if it had not been for the research of someone else, I, I would not even know who was really even buried there. All that is left of the cemetery is just headstones, markers, sometimes a faintly ascribed initial. That's only 300 years ago. I think the second sobering thought to consider here is not only that my life will end, but that one day I'll be forgotten. That's sobering to consider. I mean, after all, who in this room remembers the ninth president of the United States without starting from the top and reciting them down? We, we don't. I mean, it would be a little bit of a stretch for some of us to remember who the Sixth governor, you know, starting with our current governor and go back six governors or seven or ten. It'd be something. Take us a second. I mean, sometimes we say, oh, I forgot he was governor or he was president or she was this during those times. We forget. One day I'm going to pass away and one day all that exists of knowledge of me is going to wander away. I have in my library... Um, that I've collected over the last 20 years, about a thousand volumes, give or take. And, and in these books, many of them were gifted or given to me by pastors that had either passed away or by pastors that have retired. So it's really a library that is cobbled together of many other pastors, some of them that have been dead for 40 years. They were legacy, you know. And I, I open these books, and sometimes in the beginning of the leaflets, they'll have their name, Sometimes their address, and I'm not sure why they did this, but it seems a reoccurring theme. I have a number of these in my library, different preachers. They, they list how much they paid for the book. I don't know if that was a value sense or what, why they were doing it, but it's how much they paid for the book. That's right. Most of these books were bought for a dollar and a half to three dollars. I don't think you can get too much stuff off for a dollar and a half, three dollars, you know. But they'd write that down, and then as they're going through, they'd take their pencil, and they would begin to write, oh, that was an excellent point, you should consider this, and they're writing notes, and, and I now, 50 years or better this side on some of them, I'm reading notes. But some of them I never had the opportunity to meet. I can't tell you anything more about them than I've already said. I know their name, I know their address, I know how much they paid for that book. That's all I've got of them. In many cases, I don't know their kin, where they pastored, what difficulties they faced, but I knowing what we do of human history and knowing what we do of good and evil and knowing what we do of right and wrong can say that they face many battles in this life. It's a sobering thing to consider that. And that's the essence of this psalm. Eschatologically, you would consider that there'll be a day, one day Israel will be surrounded by kingdoms of great wealth that wish to do her harm. We referenced this just last week in Ezekiel 38 and 39, but not that place only. You could look in Revelation chapter 13, and some of the very language of the 49th Psalm reminds us of the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation. 
When it, it talks about a great beast coming out from uh, uh, the underworld that is headed and guarded and, and empowered by Satan and he seeks to harm the nation of Israel and to destroy her and to bring her at naught. And the revelation given of that Antichrist, you know, that would come in one of those first horsemen of the apocalypse. And reading there in that chapter, for the fourth chapter and the sixth verse, or rather the fifth chapter and the sixth verse, he talks about all the famine that you would buy a measure of wheat for a penny or for a day's salary, if you will. Can you imagine working all day long and the only amount of bread that you could get for all of that labor is a sandwich worth? But then he makes this essence. He said, but see that you touch not the wine and the oil. All the world in a great famine, yet comparatively they still have great wealth and they will seek to do Israel harm and there will be a group sometime later of redeemed Israel will look at that and one day these Psalms will come to mind to her as well. But in the near time, they are so very well applicable to us. I have a little reading. I often don't do this, but it was such a blessing to my heart. I want to read it to you. It was by a commentary from many years gone by. He said, this psalm is no mere commonplace on the shortness of life and on the uncertainty of riches. It is no physiological or uh, philosophical, rather, dissertation which bids us bear bravely our perils and sufferings telling us that virtue is its own reward. It goes at once to the root of the matter. It shows us not only the vanity of riches, but the end of those who boast themselves in their riches. It comforts the righteous in their oppression and affliction, not merely by the assurance that they shall finally triumph over wicked, but by the more glorious hope of an everlasting life with God. The true ground of consolation that God will not only not forsake those who trust in Him in this life, but that He will take them to Himself. That's at the very heart of this particular mind or psalm. Notice, if you will, in Proverbs, and I think I had you turn to the 23rd chapter, and I'll read this before we delve in to our psalm. Note the 23rd. Verses 4 and 5. The admonition of Solomon, a wealthy man, who by experience learned the truth that is inspired here in these scriptures. And if he were here at this very moment, he could articulate with the greatest vocabulary the resonating and continual truth that these verses do contain. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as the eagle towards heaven. That is so true, isn't it? We're sitting here in the middle of July, and just several months ago, you saw the NASDAQ and the S&P and the Russell and all of that decline by upwards of 20 and 25% valuation. Beginning of 2020, 
I believe it was, or maybe it was 20, 2017, I think it was, you saw a 40% decline. Now you go back and oft is the case. What happens? Riches make for themselves wings. The problem here is this is not an admonition against working. That's not what this is. In fact, that would be in conflict with the teachings that are found in 1 Thessalonians. This isn't in conflict with the Scripture and telling you to equip yourself and to hone your edge as a believer to be successful in life. This isn't actually saying that wealth is sin. What the conveyance is, is the pursuit. Here's the truth. Here's the principle. What we love, we pursue. Some of you have been married a while. You remember fondly those years, perhaps when you had, uh, at that time, your fiancé, and what's the old-fashioned word? They were wooing you. You were at the point of their heart, and they pursued you. You'd have thought it strange, ladies, wouldn't you? If your husband of yours was pursuing you and five other women at the same time, wouldn't you? Unless he's Mormon, that would make... No. But you would you have thought, man, there's something wrong. No, we're, listen, I'm not going to the wedding altar, and it's going to be me and thee and thee and thee. It's this way it's going to be. And it consumes you. That's what he's talking about here. Where it's the direct point of your pursuit and therefore your trust. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul speaks in this very sense to Peter, or rather Timothy, and he admonishes him about the love of money being the root of all evil, and that some, having followed after that, had brought to themselves many sorrows. Not just the sorrow that comes from the aperture of loss of that wealth, but the fact that Wealth in and of itself is not nearly as trustworthy as individuals somehow make it to be. I remember approaching my senior year of high school and having well-meaning folks come to me and say, what do you plan to do with your life? And I wanted to have a good answer because I didn't want to sound stupid. I want to have a good answer. Sometimes I still wonder what I'm going to do the rest of my life. What are you going to do the rest? What are you going to do when you grow up? I'm still trying to figure what I'm doing when I'm growing up. What are you going to do? And so I came up with a good one because it was gleaned from listening. I said, I, said, I know what it is. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make as much money as I can in life. That was my thought. Why? I had no intent in my heart to do evil with the money that I had gained. I had no thought of trying to gain money in an unlawful manner. But it seemed to me that that was the topic of so many conversations. Ergo, that must in fact be the source of truth. There's a great danger in laboring as a young man to say, well, I'm earn all the money I can. You know why? Because it won't take long that you'll start to love it. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is in this same thing. The Lord warns him. He said, take care when you come into the land that I have given thee that you say, we have done all this. That's the danger of wealth. Look what I've done. That's a danger a poor man doesn't have. He doesn't have to worry about what he's done. I have two nickels to rub together. Look what I've done. Look at my wisdom and my cunning 
and my shrewdness that I have had and, and gained to myself and the investments I have made and I bought this and I sold this and I bought and I invested and I built and look what I have. But I promise you, all the wealth of 10,000 generations is insignificant to do one immense and all-important thing. Notice in the text of Psalms, Verses 6 and 7. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. Do you know one thing wealth cannot do? It can't save a soul. You can't buy eternal life for yourself or for anyone else, regardless of how much money you have. And notice this last or this early part, he says, by any means. The wealth have a unique way of spending money. I read an article. I don't know what the status of it is directly, but recently there's a one of the wealthiest men on the face of the earth, worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. He's worth more billions than most of us are worth hundreds, you know. And he's going to buy this social media thing. And I read this article, they said it's really an interesting thing. The price tag was like $45 billion, and they said realistically, he'll probably only put 20% down. He'll only spend 20%. And I thought, how's that possible? Because he can leverage his wealth. The stock owners will buy balance of it. Banks will loan unto him. The company will aspire to have its own debt and then will recoup that and he'll own it having never paid the full price tag. Now I have had very few things in life that I've ever experienced that I could give to you as an example of this. I'm just telling you what this article said. But no matter how much wealth a man has, no matter how many ways they have to leverage or how much debt that they can aspire in life, it is insufficient to redeem a soul. Ergo, that's what Solomon's writing in the 23rd proverb, labor not to be rich, for at the end of your life, if enough time has passed, you'll be forgotten. You'll have been buried, and if enough time passes, the cemetery you're buried in may likely forget your exact plot. I mean, think about this. We know this experientially. I mean, how many of you don't, you don't have to answer this. Some of you probably can. Can tell me who your great, great, great granddaddy is. That's not that long ago. Now, if you're the fifth or sixth in line, you know, you're so-and-so the sixth. They did that as a cheat for you, you know. Most of us can't reach back that far. Or we've got to go back home and look at notes that we've got or pull out a book. That is the lot of every one of us. Notice, if you will, directly to the Psalms. He's going to start off with a universal revelation. Look in verses 1 and 1 through 4 or 5. He says, Hear this, all ye people. Give ear, all you inhabitants of the world. You notice what he does there? It's a universal realization. All ye people, all ye inhabitants, 
My, if you're going to speak of the amazing eternal grace of God, if you're going to talk about salvation, it is always universal in its expression. You are not saved because you are part of the human race. But my friend, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all of the human race. All ye people. Give ye all ye inhabitants of the world. To what extent? Well, low and high. Well, what's that mean? Nobility and ignoble. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3? I think we'll get to it later. Not many mighty, not many noble. Royalty and regular people. Lords and peasants. Plebes, patricians. Then he moves on rich and poor. Together, he says, great wealth and no wealth. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon a horse. This universal realization to be had by all, regardless of their station in life or regardless of their wealth, it reminds us of the 55th chapter of Isaiah. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, let him come. In the first chapter of Isaiah, all those whose sin is in scarlet, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord of hosts. The salvation of Christ is not kept elusive from sinners. It is God's desire that all come to faith in repentance of Him. He moves on in verses 5 and following to a very blunted description of the ungodly rich. Notice these verses. He says, Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil when iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? The writing of the psalmist, no doubt in his current situation, or at least what was current to the penning of this by inspiration, he's surrounded by the ungodly. He talks of there being evil days. He's compassed about. These are the things that will be moved by the Spirit of God to bring across a great lesson for all humanity. It says in verse 6, they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious. That's an interesting word. Valuable. Expensive. And it ceaseth forever that he should still live forever and not see corruption. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 16. That's the parable. Well, I would call it the parable, the account of the rich man and Lazarus. The man has passed this veil. He fares sumptuous every day and he's now gone and he's passed and he is in uh, Hades. He is in hell and he lifts up his eyes being in torment. Why didn't he consider eternal life prior to his death? He thought he'd still live forever. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Let me read this to you. 
I think this is a verse that our time really needs to understand. Listen to this, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. There is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. There is no discharge in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. You know what he's saying? There's nothing you do to keep your soul spirit from leaving your body. In the day of death, if that is your enumerated day, there's nothing you're going to do to add more days to your life. That's what the psalmist says. Our days are as a story that was already told. I mentioned that story about all that organic stuff folks buying. There could be many benefits to that, but I'll tell you, it's not going to add a day to your life. Yet theologically, you have the ability to shorten the days of your life. Sin against God, live an abominable, wicked life, and see if those days aren't shortened. See, that's one of the sins of the wealthy. They look at it and say, well, I'm going to trust this wealth to extend my life. I'm going to do all that I can to live as long as I can. I remarked the other week that I know two pastors within last year had, and that basically their entire life they had lived um, in a very dedicated means. They had not been immoral. They had not consumed drugs. They had not smoked. They had not drank. They had minded diets. And yet neither one of them made it to 75 years old. And on the other count, I think across society, we don't have to look very far in our society to watch individuals that live a godless life, have no respect for the things of God, imbibe in every kind of evil that there is, and yet they seem to be just as virile today as always. And so society has a tendency to say, look, they're making good decisions in life. Really, they fail to realize that it might be God giving them mercy in their life. Yet another opportunity to hear the saving grace of God. The rich man desires to live forever and he'll spend of his great fortune and his great wealth so that he will not see death and corruption. He goes on in verse number 9, or rather 10, He that seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. Here's an interesting trilogy there. The wise. He does not mean wise in the sense that James speaks of wisdom. He does not even mean wise in the sense that Solomon speaks of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1. Because to understand God's wisdom, what must occur? Proverbs chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So to talk about a man that's going to die without the knowledge of God and him being wise, he is not talking about the wisdom of God or the understanding of the things of God. This wisdom is as the wisdom of this earth. He's a cunning man. He's skillful in some things. Oh, he understands markets and gains and investments. He understands strategy and advertisement. That's what he's referencing here, a wise man. By continuations, he mentions a fool, the silly man. 
he runs from thing to thing. Boredom is the greatest director of his life, not success. The cunning man masters and sees from the earth's perspective success and the gain of money. And here's the silly man, the foolish man. And he runs to and fro. He's never accomplished anything. And then there's a third man, the brutish man. Brutish man, it has its root in the Hebrew word which means food for cattle. If you want a, a colloquial expression, he's dumber than dirt. He's like the cattle. He's like the slothful man in the book of Proverbs. He ain't done anything. Jobs and wealth have always been optional for him. Hopefully somebody picks up his tab. You can stuff all of the men and women of this world system in those three outlines. The cunning, the silly, and the brutish. And notice what it says about all three of them. They're all going to perish. And any wealth that the three of these have together or independently will be left to others. Now note this, verse 11. Their inward thought is, these ungodly wealthy, that their houses shall continue forever. Our president's over, or was over in Saudi Arabia, and he met with MBS. I don't know if you read that in the news, but MBS. He met with MBS. MBS said this about fuel production. MBS gave the president, and I was like, who is MBS? It's Muhammad bin Suleiman. He is the Saudi crown prince. And he wants to be cool. And apparently people are not able to say his name. Say, universally, that's what he's referred to as. I don't realize that that happened pre-pandemic, but whatever. MBS. And his dad is about 95 years old. And they are the longest reigning sovereigns in the Middle East. When I read that article, I thought, that's interesting who made them king? They can trace their dynasty back to the 1300s. Get this. That's longer than the Windsor household has ever sat on the throne of England. That's how far they can. That's before Henry VIII, I am, I am. And it's the same line. I thought of that, Wow. The world over would love that, wouldn't they? To simply establish that their houses would continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. Look at this last phrase. See if it doesn't resonate with your heart. They call their lands after their own. Oh, Alexander the Great is an ample example of this. 33 years old, he died, conquered really everywhere from Great Greece and Macedonia all the way out to Bactria. Bactria. That's modern-day Afghanistan. That's how far his dominion was. And in that dominion, when he created new areas for his soldiers to be while continuing the advancement of his exploits, his favorite name for a city was Alexandria. He had 16 of them. 
were named after him. In one sense, societies do that today. They still name cities after famous individuals. We have all kind of Washingtons. You go down south, there's a lot of Greenvilles. It's named after a lord. Greenville, that was his name. That's where it came from. Sometimes in honor and sometimes in recognition. But the consideration is that they call their lands after their own. Nevertheless, verse 12, man being in honor abideth not. He, this man that's without God, is like the beast that perisheth. When a man fails to consider the shortness of his life and to fail to prepare for his eternal existence, he's like a wild animal. They trust in their wealth. Throughout the scriptures, there are many passages that describe the ungodly riches. None is greater than the 18th chapter of Luke. In the 18th verse, there's a rich young ruler. In Mark, he's called a young master that came into the Lord Jesus and said, What shall I do to inherit life, eternal life? The Lord listed a series of the commandments and he says, finally, the young Lord says, I've done all those since my youth. You remember the final thing the Lord asked him? He said, take of all your substance, give to the poor and come follow me. The scripture says that young man went away sorrowfully for he was very rich. You know what his greatest pursuit in life was? His wealth. Equally, it was his greatest truth or rather trust. I'm going to have wealth and follow God. I'm going to put the preeminence of things and possessions equal to or greater to God. That's what I want. He had invented a new means of salvation. Later in the same chapter, the 26th verse, this statement is made. It's easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying rich man can't be saved? No. We know there's wealthy men that were saved. What's he saying? There'll be no salvation if your wholehearted trust is in wealth instead of God. That's what his uh, his, uh, expression is. It is humanly impossible for everyone by any means, that includes the wealthy, to hold on to their sinful priorities and their personal control and equally attempt to come to God on their own terms. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, For you see our calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. No amount of money can buy eternal life. No amount of money can redeem one's soul from sin. There's no amount of money that's going to extend life forever. Put this way in this illustration, I find it to be appropriate. Life is like the continuance of a man that is a traveler at an inn who tarrieth but for a night and like all others is never seen again. It's a powerful sentiment to consider. This is the end of the ungodly uh, ungodly 
wealthy. Come down to verses 14 and 20, and he gives a final section to the psalm. It's a contrast between the ungodly and the righteous. Verse 14, this is powerful here in verse 14. Like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The imagery here is as a shepherd that leads the sheep. One day, death has shepherded all of the souls of the unredeemed and to be in a place of torment forever. That's where the God of this world has shepherded all the ungodly. Yet it stands in stark contrast to the righteous. Verse 15, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. In keeping with that shepherd analogy, I'm reminded of the seventh chapter of Revelation where the scripture says, The Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, talking of the righteous, and shall lead them unto the living fountains of water, and God shall wipe every tear from their eye. Or perhaps the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The righteous are led by the shepherd's own hand and the ungodly are consumed by the shepherds of their own choice. God will redeem the righteous. Hosea in his prophecies that God gave to him in the 13th chapter writes this, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from the death. O death, I will be thy plague. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid in mine eyes. It reminds you of the glorious courses in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Old death, where is thy sting? Old grave, where is thy victory? There's two different shepherds here. The righteous man has put his hope and his trust and his future in the promises of an almighty God, knowing that that God and that God alone hath the power to redeem his soul from hell. But those that pursue any other means, be it money, be it education, be it help, be whatever it may be, they've pursued that to their end. Their own choices will feast upon them. He mentions in verse 16 and four, uh, 16 and onward some descriptions of these ungodly. He says in verse 16, he says, Be not afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. Why? His influence is not forever. You think of people, families, nations that have had influence over the course of human history comes and it goes. The power brokers of today are not guaranteed. In fact, they are guaranteed that they will not be the power brokers of the days to come. Verse 17, he mentions this, For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Wealth. You know, you often hear these names in the media. It seems like the Koch brothers, you hear their names all the time. Their influence have given hundreds of millions of dollars to various somewhat conservative causes over the years. Another name that is often given is Soros. And he has given 
millions and millions of dollars to liberal causes over the years. Ironically, their money came from Nazi Germany, both of them. They, they had companies that prospered during that time frame. I'm not saying they did anything legal. I'm just, it's interesting they came from the same place. But one day their influence will be concluded. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul. And men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. How true that is. Their glory will be forgotten. While they lived, men praised them for their success. But note this, be not afraid. It will one day come to conclusion. He shall go to the generations of his father. They shall never see light. The pleasures of life will cease. Darkness shall be prevalent. And I think of the descriptions of that eternal lake of fire. Darkness. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beast that perish. You talk about the failure, the greatest failure in life. We speak so often, our society does, of being successful. And from the human aperture, we look at success and someone comes out of abysmal poverty and, and they've labored and got some breaks this way or that way and maybe some education along the ways and towards the end of their life, they now are billionaires. I think about, was it Carnegie, I believe, was in this role. He came out of financial obscurity and through diligence and effort, his aptitude to learn and his hard work, he became a man that had at one time the ability to say one of the wealthiest men on the face of the earth. And the world over, even today, would applaud those efforts and say, wow, he hath done well to himself. By every metric, people would say, well, that type of lifestyle is successful. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beast that perish. Over the Midwest a couple weeks ago, they had that heat wave and all those cattle died. Do you remember that? I have to ask if you remember it because we've all forgotten about it. It's not on the forefront of our minds. A man that understands not God's plan of salvation, a man that is heard and refuses to submit himself to God being the supreme God, In God's measure, his life was inconsequential. He wasn't successful at all because he failed in his greatest need. But what's the greatest need? That's all the way back in verse 7. He needs a redeemed soul. And no amount of money can buy it. And yet at the same time, setting your face on those things that will not be, and failing to make that a preeminent pursuit of your life will cause you to be as successful as the best Angus cow. That's the summary of verse 20. But to the righteous, the hope is in verse 15. God will redeem my soul from the power of 
of the grave. He shall receive, uh, he shall receive me. Think about that. He's going to receive me. Well, what if in this life I didn't attain my millions? What if in this life I squandered some opportunities? What if in this life I've had to deal with constant disappointment? What if in, what if in this life? What, what if in this life so sincere I was in the pursuit of godliness that there were some opportunities made to me that I resisted so that I might win the excellency of Christ. He receiveth me. That is a glorious sentence. I think of a hymnist. Even me with all my sin, purged from every spot and stain, Heaven for me will enter in. Sing it o'er and o'er again. Christ receiveth sinful men. Why? Paul penned this to Timothy. Timothy, this is a faithful saying. Worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He receiveth me. The promise of being received into the arms of the Savior was not known to the psalmist in the same way it's known to you and I. He knew nothing of the mystery that could cause him to miss death. Yet his hope in scriptures caused him in the darkest and most prosperous time of the world among the ungodly to have hope. How greater still the promise of this present age awaits you and I that we could in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, you know, to ever be with our Lord in the air. Two choices. But money can never buy you. A choice. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.